0: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Web of Make Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet.
1: We are in an informational crisis that is destroying us.
0: The internet just went crazy. You have to question your own sense of reality. Today, we're talking to director Brian Nappenberger. The internet connects friends and strangers like never before. But that ease of communication and the ability to mask your identity or location can make the digital world a hunting ground. Spreading hate or disinformation, extorting the innocent, ripping off the unsuspecting. Web of Make Believe goes beyond the crimes of bad actors to explore the unseen ripple effects of their digital deeds. Whether they can damage an individual's self-esteem, violate a community's privacy, or even lead to death.
1: They left him there on the ground until all of it was over with. So she had to walk over his body and look at him and see him and then get handcuffed outside.
0: Brian Knappenberger, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So we've got five stories over six episodes that deal with the dark side of technology. Yeah. At the start, did you plan on focusing on, on one big story or was it your intention to find variations on a theme and do this as a series?
1: I always thought it was a, a series, a collection of stories um, that I'd been kind of looking at and thinking about for a number of years. And I just I just I think the big picture thinking was was looking at the um, at the way these sorts of stories kind of related to each other, uh, so we always thought of it as a as a series.
0: So, what do you think sets your series apart? I mean, Web of Make Believe it's it's not certainly the first and only series about the darker side of technology.
1: The basic premise is that we're um, caught in an information environment that we that we don't understand and uh you know so we have kind of swirling around us uh pressuring us at all times this kind of competition to to get and retain our attention or to influence the way that we the way that we think um and the depth of this is so profound that it's often not clear where those influences are coming from or what the kind of real world uh reverberations are we don't know what the the real goal of some of this information that 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 reaches us is either and it takes a lot of forms i mean we're sort of emotionally you know pressured by social media we're um we're in this period of time when we're experiencing this near total loss of privacy uh in our lives you know there's this kind of international struggle with uh, involving misinformation we're not even sure internationally where it might be coming from surveillance and data theft uh are also a part of that and it's not clear the effect that they're having on us so Uh, We're experiencing all of these things, including like the ability to algorithmically manipulate online communities, steer the truth in ways that kind of prey on the vulnerability of the human mind to conspiracy. And, uh, you know, we put early in the series that uh, the Marshall McLuhan line that we live invested in an electric information environment that is quite as imperceptible uh, uh, to us as water is to fish. Hmm. So that's the kind of the world that I, I wanted to, uh, of stories that I wanted to tell.
0: So some production questions. Um, you started planning for a series about internet-based crimes. I have to ask, did you think you'd have so many police chases in a series Oh yeah. About these um, online well, crimes?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we always, you know, law enforcement is is interesting uh, because when, when it comes to this sort of thing, because it's dealing with all kinds of new Things as well, right? These crimes are often very new. There's an episode that we do that we, it's the sextortion episode. So Mm. there's a really uh, wonderful kind of writer, thinker, lawyer named Quinta Jurassic who is, who says that they're, you know, people have always been kind of uh, mean to each other, but now they're used, you know, using new tools and new, new social media environment in order to do this in new ways. And so, you know, law enforcement has always been kind of struggling to keep up with that, uh, new technologies, new frauds, new scams, new crimes. Uh, but on the same, at the same time, law enforcement has new tools, more powerful tools, uh, that they've never had before, which are, uh, I think open up a lot of legitimate civil liberties concerns, uh, when it comes to surveillance and the fourth amendment, um, which protects us from from searches. So new tools, more powerful tools than ever, but crimes that are more bizarre and confusing uh, to law enforcement than ever.
0: So the first story in your series is Death by SWAT. Mm -hmm. The story's origins have to do with this kind of toxic masculinity, these extreme trash talkers among online gamers (laughs) using the police to bust up gamer live streams, phoning in bomb threats. All of these crimes are anonymous, done from afar. I find myself wondering, is this like a cowardly form of aggression or is it a more aggressive form of aggression because it's anonymous, if that makes sense? like It is makes it- a
1: lot of sense. Uh, I, I really think a lot about I made I made a film, one of my first. Uh, features was about anonymous about uh, the group anonymous and it brings up a question that has been at the heart of internet culture, which is what, what does anonymity, how important is anonymity and what does it, what does it do? I mean, you can look at that from from the perspective of protesters and sources and things like that in which there's a legitimate need and in some ways a right to anonymity. Uh, You can look at it from the perspective of doxing, which in which the, that right is being wielded against somebody you know that that sort of opening up of their information is is being used as a as a kind of weapon Uh, but then what makes it so complicated is what sorts of uh, dark edges of the human psyche or or psychology are opened up when when there is no accountability right when when you aren't the person that you are in real life you know we are live in a society that you know, typically, or at least evolved to be in a society in which we know who each person is, and there's a social pressure to kind of stepping out of, of or committing a crime or doing something, doing something like that. So online, sometimes that social pressure is gone if there's no uh, accountability. So there's a there's a struggle and a tension there. Uh, it's a deep question, I think. It's a struggle and tension that has been at the heart of the internet for. Since the beginning
0: so an argument over that dollar fifty wager spiraled into a SWAT raid on a home which led to an innocent man being shot and killed by a cop. Mm-hmm. The episode then pivots to this look at police accountability and That made a left turn. I'm wondering if you knew it was going to go there when you were crafting the episode and, you know, kind of your position on that, because I feel like the episode did take a position on on that story.
1: Yeah. I mean, the first part of that question, we didn't really I mean, we're really looking at swatting in this specific instance of how uh, it how it led to such tragic uh, consequences with the death of Andrew Finch. And that, that sort of was our entry point into it. But really, it, it wasn't that long into it. Maybe you know, as we started filming, you realize this is a police accountability story. This is a, a kind of story about the militarization of police in some ways. The 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 idea that there's the police have lots of weapons. That there there's an issue with uh, police training and and the kind of use of these weapons that's a real problem so uh yeah i, I think i think we realized we, we didn't start out that way but we did realize part way through pretty early that 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 episode was as much about police accountability as as anything and it turns out that wichita has i think on average 11 times higher than the national average in police involved shootings it's very difficult to get information on these incidents Kansas has possibly the weakest open records law in the country. They basically hope that you don't find out and that the statute of limitations expires so that they don't have to pay out on a case. We we did learn that I think that that officer, Justin Rapp, uh, may, may have been, we're learning this even today, that he may have been promoted to detective. So he may actually have gotten promoted out of this while all of the other characters, Casey, Shane, and of course, Tyler... All did prison time. Uh, Mm. Tyler, of course, is still still in prison.
0: So murder in D.C. looks at the killing of Seth Rich, a Mm -hmm. Democratic Party worker who died in an apparent robbery. His death was then weaponized by political opportunists, conspiracy theorists to tell this story Um, in a a digital world with no gatekeepers, with Alex Jones and like this post Sandy Hook era. Yeah. was there ever a way to prevent this from happening, you think?
1: Well, it also, um, that's an interesting question because I, I think we're struggling with that now. How do we get conspiracy theories how, the, you know, the truth, the truth kind of catches up slowly to some of these lies. And that's especially true in this lead up to an election, right? Where the lies are just coming so quick and the misinformation is coming so quickly that uh, fact checkers, you know, are struggling to keep up. We may not know all the details and the story might just be so juicy and so interesting to these people that they just. It's just too good to to not kind of promote and and push and too close to their own political leanings to uh, even bother with fact checking. So that's what this got caught up in. I mean, look, I think eventually, you know, the, the Joel and Mary Rich came forward. This is the first video interview that they've done in this series. And it becomes clear when you talk to them and the tragedy and the and. Um, the real pain that they experienced in, with the loss of their son and the searching for clues to his um to what happened to him uh real clues uh that this was a tragedy and uh, eventually you know with the lawsuits and everything it did catch up right it did we we caught up to the truth uh we we do know we do under- kind of understand a little more now about what happened but it came at the pri- at a price it came yeah. at the at a price of a family that's torn apart that may never really know everything that happened because so much time went by chasing down these bizarre conspiracy theories.
0: So Seth Rich's family uh, seemed to put their trust in someone who said that he would help Jack Berkman Mm -hmm. um, ended up, you know, kind of doing them dirty. How did you convince them that um, you were going to do right by them and telling their story?
1: Well, I think two reasons. They, they, they had seen some of the past work I think that we'd done uh, and that, that, uh, you know I'd be like i think that helps a lot you know when you've uh, you sort of track record i guess we also did this in conjunction with um you know, we were, uh, with a consultant on this, David Falkenflick. Yes. We had both, uh, we had both been kind of, I'd known David for, for, for a while and we had talked about telling this story and he had done a lot of reporting on, on them and had actually been sued himself by another figure in this named Ed Butowski. And so, you know, we talked to them a bunch. This, you know, this happens with a lot of sources, I think in documentaries, You, you just talk to them offline. You try to, um, articulate what, it is you want to do with that with the story, the kind of story that way well, you want to approach it, and the kind of questions that you want to ask them and, and understand. And and uh and over time they 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 agreed to sit down with us.
0: So Jack Berkman is in your documentary. He is, yeah. And at one point he tells you this. Insane story about how he got shot in the butt by one of his own investigators. Shot
1: in the butt, yes.
0: As you're sitting there, you know, as you're listening to someone like this just tell a story, and I'm, you know, are you just silent so that you can just (laughs) let the viewer sort of see for themselves? Like, what were you thinking in that? Yes.
1: uh, I was thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Is he then realized it was me? I grabbed the documents, hurried out as
0: I did. By the time he boom, 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 he hit me in each butt, cheek and twice in the leg, and then uh, the dog bullet bounced and hit the dog in the paw.
1: And uh, so I'm running down with the baby, the baby's bleeding, I'm bleeding. He then tries to run me over. I threw the dog as I was running because I wanted to save the baby. I thought I was dead. Uh, I thought, because the thing's coming at me, but lo and behold, at the last minute, he hits a speed bump, boom, pops him up, and slows
0: him down with just enough force that only thing he did was just about destroy the bottom part of my left arm, which almost fell off.
1: I think what's what's so fascinating about uh, Berkman is just the, you know, th- this, this is an example of the kinds of people that get onto this story, that, that, that were attracted to this story and wanted this story to be true. I mean, he comes in and even in an early press conference, he says, there exists no theory of the case at all. The Seth, Mur- the rich murder and a reporter yells out, well, you know, what about a robbery? And he just sort of just dismisses it. So... You know, this was a theory, a juicy story that was that they in which there was a desperate search for proof uh, for purely political reasons. These sort of sideline operatives, they just really wanted it to be true. It was publicity for them. It confirmed their suspicions. It may have been a been a sort of distraction from the from the idea that that there was uh, real Russian collusion. That that well, not collusion, but that the Russians had. Um, played a role in stealing the DNC emails. This this was the perfect mix of elements that were needed in a in a kind of social media environment that was already primed for conspiracy, in the already fact check free environment leading up to an election.
0: So Murder in D.C. is actually a really interesting jumping off point for the episode that's really dark. Uh, It's called I Am Not a Nazi, Mm -hmm. which to me immediately signaled that we're going to hear a lot about why people think someone probably is or was a Nazi. Um, The episode seems really timely, in some ways very hopeless, but in one way in particular, a little bit hopeful, Mm
1: -hmm. like
0: maybe The hate speech, hate thought genie can sometimes go back in the bottle or not. I mean, I I, it was it was very difficult for me to sort of wrap my head around. What do you think?
1: Well, the ambiguity there, I think, is kind of what we were getting at. You know, I think throughout this episode, I mean, just I I will I will say that it took a lot of um, guts, a lot of courage for. Uh, Samantha to sit down with us and do this interview. This is the first time she's done an extended interview like this about her experience, and it's not, um, you know, it's not complimentary to her necessarily. It, it uh, at least, all of it. I like jumped up and like see Kyle. I just went with it. I, I completely lost myself in that energy. So that is the first time I see Kyle. <sighs> um which is a very common thing in the alt right like don't don't let this whole you know suit and tie thing fool you she's uh, pretty open about um you know what what sort of got her to these early steps down the rabbit hole of the al- alt right she is open about how much she embraced it um you know she i think she had some reservations at first, but there's no question that she fully embraced that culture, um, and became a key figure in Identity Europa, which is a uh, which is a, a white supremacist uh, hate group, alt right hate group. Um, or was, you know, she's a, very much a part of it. She was an organizer of it. Um, she talks about that, and then she talks about how she became disillusioned with it, uh, and and uh, over time, but also. Uh, with specifically with the, with, um, the death of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. Um, she had helped plan the Unite the Right rally, the previous Unite the Right rally. A lot of people don't realize there was, there were two of these. She had had a real, played a real role in organizing the first one. She tried to sit out the second one. Um, and she did, but she felt a degree of responsibility for that, that I think is, is real. But I think, you know, in your question and, the ambiguity that you felt maybe watching it, um, I, I, think is there. I mean, you want to understand why does she do this? I mean, ultimately she does join this group, um, life after hate, which I think is doing good work with this sort of, this sort of thing when you, with people who can kind of talk about this and, and get out of, out of this, uh, these sorts of hate groups, cults, really, she calls it a cult. And start to, to work back towards a, a kind of normal life. I was talking to a friend of mine about this and, and they said that we have so many kind of highly mechanized means of, of radicalizing people with a- algorithms and on YouTube and in social media, but there are very, very few things that bring people back out of it, that, that ease people back out of that kind of radicalization. This is a story of someone who did or attempted to, but it's not surprising that if you watch it, uh, you'll question, question her choices. I'm glad she sat for the interview. I think it's super helpful to people, um, but I think she's even struggling with some of that herself.
0: You know, it's interesting. First of all, Belmont, New Hampshire is about 10, 12 miles from where I'm sitting right now. So it was, of course, very interesting for me to watch that episode just as somebody who lives in central New Hampshire. Um, But I had a question about the law enforcement angle on that because... You know that case, that sextortion case involved uh, young girls from one New Hampshire high school. They all friended a boy on Facebook who got a hold of their accounts and then either stole or demanded uh, nude photos. We later learn it's Ryan Valley, and he's been an unassuming classmate of theirs. Was it ever determined how he was able to pull this scam off, like you know through these anonymous accounts, how he was able to take control and and create all these personas?
1: He did it in a way that's pretty common to social media scams. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, he just kind of, um, these were people that he knew, which in some ways made it him easier to find. It didn't have to be somebody so close to them. But, you know, he he texted with with some of these girls. He, you know, prodded them for... Uh, information in ways that was kind of searching for clues to what their passwords might be um once he had one piece of information he was he would try to then uh use that in order to get more information hmm. uh, and then eventually um would would go into actually you know the 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 kind of extortion of it the sort of blackmail aspect of it you know once he had some, you know, in this threatening to dox or reveal them in different ways, or pictures that they had sent boyfriends and stuff like that. So he had sort of step by step had befriended them, pushed them, uh, and then started kind of coercing them to do this. So it's it was an example of, uh, you know, I think I think an all too common example. It's one of the reasons why we were really really interested in that episode is that I think a lot of people have experienced this and are suffering from this but don't know quite what to do.
0: So we hear from Christina Waterman. Uh, She tells us how devastating it was to be extorted this way. Yeah. I was really shocked um, to hear how deeply painful the fear was um, of exposure uh, of these teenage girls and how how, just how afraid they were. Um, Can you just talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I I, want to call out uh, one of our producers here, Alexandra Orton. She uh, conducted that interview, and I just think it's a really just a, a wonderful and insightful interview. And um, I, I'm just so proud of Christina for for being that um, courageous to, that she was able to kind of talk about this. I kept repeating myself and she kept asking me what was going on. So finally I gave her my phone and I said, mom, I can't do this. I want to die and I'm begging you to let me kill myself. Um, and from that point, my mom um, looked at me and said, we're going to do something about this because I'm not going to let you die. Without question. If you, if you look at the episodes, it's got to be one of the, the worst things that's, uh, that's ever happened to her. And, and she was at an um, extremely, extremely low point in this. And um, so it's, uh, I'm just so proud that she was able to, uh, to, to come forward and talk about that. And I think that's true for all of the girls in that, in that episode. That, that it was... I think it's just an enormous service to to people to have come forward and and uh use their real identities and to talk about this story. They also figured out the crime basically they also did the detective work mm. uh that brought this guy to justice i mean for all practical purposes it was it was them.
0: So the two-part finale called The Stingray mm-hmm. starts with Beanie Babies and ends with a provocative question about <laughs> digital civil liberties. You probably could have told this story of IRS scam man Daniel Ringmaiden without Brett Johnson, but why the hell would you have wanted to do that, right?
1: <laughs> that's a good point. I think that's true with this series throughout. Everywhere you turn, there's there's really interesting characters that, that, that just... Uh, That just kind of blow your mind. What I need you to do is send me a U.S. postal money order. It protects us both. Once that clears, I'll send you your animal. She sent me the U.S. postal money orders. I cash them out, send her this messed up little stuffed animal, immediately get a phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response was, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant. That was the first online crime that I committed right there. And I kept going. It's a very serious series looking at all sorts of, uh, very big picture topics, but it is so, uh, engaging these characters and Brett is, Brett is definitely an example of that. Um, he's hilarious. Um. I don't, know what, I don't know what else to say. I mean, he's,
0: I want him to start a podcast. I'm not going <laughs> to. I could think of. I would,
1: I would listen to that podcast. No doubt, I would
0: 100% listen. I want to hear him interviewing people about anything, and then in between the questions, just drop anecdotes about dying, sort of gray elephants, sort of blue, and then selling them for what four thousand dollars. Exactly.
1: Hey, you, you wanted an elephant, you got. Uh, you know, a grayish elephant, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or scam, scamming uh, people with cable boxes and stuff. I mean, it was it was a very entertaining interview. And this was the guy that basically essentially taught Daniel how to how to do the crime, how to do the do the thing that he Daniel. Daniel, of course, is a brilliant uh, guy. He and and uh, was able to kind of automate this and take it to another this crime to another level Um you got to be careful. I mean, he, it's a crime. There's no question it's a crime. So you can't have too much admiration for his level of innovation and how he did it. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, so Brett Johnson is the guy that basically taught him how to do it. And then he, um, with his kind of relentless mind, uh, took it to another level.
0: Yeah, you turn it into an art form, right?
1: In some ways, yeah.
0: Yeah. And as somebody whose spouse was scammed by a fake IRS filing, at the same time, I was like, oh, damn you. I'm so impressed, but I'm also so angry because now I have to look for that pin that came in the mail every year. When yeah. <laughs> our stupid tax returns. Oh, wow. I mean, it was really the scope. I, I honestly, the scale was incredibly impressive. You see those bricks of money, you know, having to rent, you know, find places to hide that much money. And I always think, like, what is the end? game for someone like Ring Maiden. Uh, is there enough money? Does he have a plan? Because it really seems like, you know, living in a very modest place, wearing that hoodie. Um, yeah. Was there a plan? I mean, at least we saw, you know, that uh, Brett Johnson had this plan to like live in the Disney Vacation Club. You know, <laughs> <laughs> What was Ring Maiden's plan?
1: Uh, his plan was straight out of Jason Bourne. I mean, he had a storage facility in which he was um, stacking up these big, you know, big piles of money, you know, a handful of different, you know, perfectly executed um, fake IDs and passports. And um, for him, it was a classic, just one more gig and I'm out to Brazil kind of thing. It was that just one. It was, it's, it's oh, almost, wait, it's just one it's almost, more. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't, if it wasn't a documentary, it might have, it might have seemed too cliche, but it was. You know, it was one of those just one more crime and we're out kind of moments. And uh, at least that's how he says it. And he had, you know, he converted a bunch of stuff to gold. He had kind of in this ingenious way discovered how to sort of launder it, um, how he could um, then get the gold, you know, get the upload the value of the gold and sell it and then be able to. Uh, to get it back later when he had left the country, all sorts of, all sorts of plans like that. And he, he was planned for the next step. He was, he was primed for the next step. He was, it was a like, no holds barred, go to the storage facility, get the fake ID, pick your fake ID, get your money and get out of the country kind of, kind of plan, Uh, which of course was completely foiled by the feds. Uh, They caught him uh, the whole, last sort of heist that he was involved with was a total sting operation from the be- from the beginning to the end. And, and, and they captured him. So he uh, didn't get to ha- have it, but what was so bizarre is that he, they, they kept the gold that he had stole stolen. And because it just <laughs> it turned out to be a, a decent investment actually. So yeah. in the time that it was in the possession of the feds, it had actually gained money. So he had paid back, the money that that he had stolen pl- uh, with the gold and because the, it was a smart investment, they actually made a small profit.
0: Is the message of this episode that technology cuts both ways for criminals and for law enforcement, like law enforcement, the government can also be bad guys potentially uh, using this tech? I,
1: I think so. And that's been a big question of the, our digital age. You know, um, uh, you know, the, there's there are um, I mean, to, to be clear, Daniel Rigmaiden is a criminal. And, uh, you know, I I made a film about Aaron Swartz, and I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that what Aaron was doing probably wasn't illegal and that he was sort of uh, over prosecuted. Um, Daniel, it's not so it's not like that. I mean, Daniel was stealing millions of dollars from the IRS. There's no question about that. And the feds went after him and should have gone after him. Um, But. That said, I mean we are in a digital age now where there are lots of, you know, surveillance tools that are asking and forcing us to ask new questions about what they mean, right? I mean, the 4th Amendment to the Constitution protects us against illegal searches and see, uh, seizures of our personal artifacts. So what what does that mean in the digital age? Can you search somebody's email? Can you can you follow what they do online? Can you where are the lines in the digital age when everything is on Online, that's a big question. It's been a big question for you know 15 years. That that's been something that we've been kind of trying to to think about. But the question I think with Daniel was this new device called a stingray. Uh, how was it being used by by the authorities? At heart, at the at the crux of it, how what were the judges being told with when they were getting warrants? Were, were the judges fully aware that this is what? was being used and the, and what was revealed by Rig Maiden is that oftentimes the judges weren't they, this was called a confidential source, uh, oftentimes which is thought of as being a human source, um, not a device that can also collect without question the the data of lots of people around the suspect in the neighborhood or in the town that are are not suspected of a crime. So, is, was the judge when they're issuing that a warrant aware that there could be other people caught up in this collection of data? And that was a big question. And that's really the question that becomes the most relevant part of what Rig kind of his case revealed to, to the world. Uh, the use um, – it was the first time it was really known that these, these devices, stingrays, which can – or sort of cell site interceptors could be used – And then what does that mean in terms of a warrant? I mean, the Fourth Amendment says you got to get a warrant to search.
0: Final question for you. Um, Technology obviously made these bad actors in your series do crimes in the ways that they did them. Do you think they would have done crimes if the technology hadn't been there?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It's another one of those open and I, and I love that this series I guess maybe it's clear we're going for this this ambiguity of the human animal and and how it's being worked on by technology and and the way that this weird environment accentuates this. Um but yeah, I mean, look at Look at, Brett, look at Brett in that last episode. I mean, yeah, he's going to figure out a different scam. Uh, he's going to figure something out. He's going to, you know, he comes, he talks about his mom doing the you know, slip and fall in a convenience store or stealing a, you know, a, a, a Caterpillar um, <laughs> a tractor. Uh, you know, like, yeah, I, I think it's there no matter what. But it, But the internet introduces something new to this equation and in all sorts of ways that is just, we're still trying to deal with, and that is not clear yet. And I, and I think that's what we're getting at with this series, that, we're, that we live in this information environment where anonymity is a part of it, identity is a part of it, uh, where information that we don't understand, we don't understand its origin uh, is a part of it. We're being worked on in ways that we don't we don't understand and that are unclear to us. And uh, I think that's I think that's really the environment we live in, and that's the environment we're going to have to get used to and, and learn how to, to master and get a, get a grip on, because it's not going backwards, it's only going forwards.
0: Well, your series is aptly titled because I think we're living in a web of make believe. Uh, Brian Nappenberger, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed the series. I learned a lot, and it was fascinating to watch.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Brian Knappenberger. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.